It is, by all accounts, one of those most awkward conversations that a parent can have with their child. It's the talk. If you are a parent and have had that conversation, you know the awkwardness. If you had that conversation with your parents as a young person, you really know the awkwardness. There is a fear or an anxiety that a parent can have when they go to have that conversation because for maybe eight, nine, ten years, they, they knew they had to have the conversation with their child, but all of a the sudden their child went from baptism to needing to have that conversation overnight. And then they realize that these things come not but by fasting and prayer because they have to have the talk. And so with anxiety, they maybe pull their child aside and they begin to explain to them the birds and the bees. And the reaction from the child, from the young person, can be equally as awkward. I think of the Macaulay Culkin, right, when he puts the aftershave on his face and his mouth is wide open and he's screaming. Kind of that's how a child can respond. Or, or some of them just don't want to hear it. Fingers in the ears, eyes closed. No, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. And not from my parents. <laughs> or, as they get older, and you, you all know, there are times when you have to continually have this conversation in different aspects. And then you get the teenager kind of tilt of the head, lazy eye. Are we really going to talk about this again? Yes. And yet with all the awkwardness, with all of that that goes on, we still have the conversation. We, we understand there's a need to have that conversation. Why? Because we want to impart to our children, hopefully, a view of sex which they will appropriate and which they will be faithful to. Whether it's an attempt to try to protect them from what we view as harms from that, or whether it's an attempt to impart to them what we're going to talk about today, which is an understanding of a biblical view of sex and faithfulness. But the fact that we are compelled and feel compelled to have that conversation means that we understand intrinsically that there is a need for it because when we enter into this world, we don't know everything that we need to know about it. And that oftentimes we can, without guidance, enter in more deeply to the brokenness that we have as humanity. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles or the Pew Bible in front of you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In the Pew Bible is page 1,777. A lot of 7s in there. The reaction of children about this topic is interesting. Usually, when I am going to preach, my children tell me they are very anxious and excited that I'm going to preach. They were strangely quiet all week. It is a topic that is difficult. It's a topic, though, that is extremely personal and intimate. And Paul wants to relate some things to us. Christ, through his apostle, wants to relate things to us for our good, for our benefit, so that we might live faithfully and might experience his joy. So if you will, read with me. Starting in chapter 6, verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, But I will not be mastered by anything. 
Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There are many, many attitudes towards sex in our society and that have existed throughout history. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, and also in some of his other writings, lays out what may be the three most significant options outside of the gospel. And so as we explore this, we want to explore what our attitudes of sex are in relation to faithfulness. But not only do we want to explore the attitudes towards sex, but we will also look at the beauty of sexual faithfulness and then also the catalyst for sexual faithfulness. Tim Keller calls out three views or attitudes, or beliefs about this thing. First, he says that there is that view or attitude that sex is an animal passion. This is the sexual Platonism view, where, whereby the, the spiritual is the most high and the most noble. And those passions that are of a bodily or fleshly form are lower, they are degrading, they may be even dirty, but at its best, they are a necessary evil. This view intrinsically says that all the desires that were given to us by God in our person, in our body, as they relate to our flesh, are not actually good. They are not to be enjoyed or sought after, but rather seen as a necessary evil. Another attitude is that sex is an appetite. It's merely an appetite. It's a natural appetite. And we we should treat it like any other appetite that we have. Whether it's food and drink or the appetite for pleasure, we we should treat it exactly the same. Fulfill it as necessary. There's nothing different about it. There's nothing, nothing special about it. Of course, in our own lives, we know that's not true. We know that 
that particular appetite has large and vast ramifications across the entirety of our life in ways that other appetites do not. The third attitude is sex as abridgment of creativity. This is the sexual romanticism view, which says that the mores of society and, and culture and all of these things has, has laid so many different limiting factors around this subject that the natural goodness of sex, that, that our ability to freely express it and, and find out who we are through it or, or find our true meaning in it is stifled because of society. Yet the very fact that we feel compelled to talk to our children about this shows us that it's not merely a societal issue. Because we know our own brokenness in this. How that each one of us has experienced either pain and violation against us or we have exercised this appetite in such a way that we have hurt other people. And we say there must be some way, some way to exercise it, some way to approach it, a belief about it that actually makes sense, that that doesn't view it as something that's a necessary evil or something that's just merely there or even something that we use to find out who we are. And so, what is that other option? Keller says it's really the gospel. For the gospel views sex as an ascription of glory to God. It is a worship of our Creator. The gospel rails against and defeats the idea that sex is bad or dirty or lower. The very fact that there's an entire book of the Bible called Song of Solomon, which, which in its beauty and poetry is also ever so honest about the beauty of sex. So much so that if you read it, and you perceived what it was saying, and sometimes if you read it in the original language where translations, where translations take liberty because they're not comfortable with being as blatant as what that book is, you might blush. But the gospel says that sex is good. It's a creation by God. But the gospel also says that sex is not merely an appetite. It's not just something natural, just like everything else. It's different. It's unique. But like all of our other appetites, it too is under the effects of the fall. It too is broken. The gospel also says that sex is not merely something that is good for us that we should use to explore, to find out who we are. In fact, the gospel says that sex is not primarily about the individual's happiness or self-fulfillment. Rather, it is about a way to know Christ and to build his kingdom. Even in that, even in that, though, the gospel says it is a way. When we live in a society today when sex is really everywhere around us, it's as though the greatest and most noble thing or the best thing in the society that you can have, the best thing you can relate to is this thing called sex. And yet the gospel says, no, it's a way. It's not the only way that Christ has called his people to. But it is placed in its proper position. 
within the context of the gospel. If we are to understand the gospel view of sex, if we are to appropriate that which God has created and to be faithful to it, then the first thing we need to do is to understand the beauty of sexual faithfulness within the context of the gospel, within the context of the world we live in, for this world was created by God. And so Paul, in speaking about sexual faithfulness, gives us some aspects of the beauty of this. Though he, he is speaking to the people in Corinth in relation to immorality, saying there are things that we need to abstain from, he also is speaking to them about ways in which it should be expressed. So there is both a passive aspect to faithfulness, and there is also what we might call a positive or active aspect to faithfulness. And so we understand these in the context of what Paul is saying. The first thing he says about the beauty of sexual faithfulness is that our bodies belong to Christ. And not just our bodies, but also our souls. This is a hard concept for us in our society to deal with. Right? I mean, come on, in America... It's all about the individual's rights. It's all about what we have. It's about us owning, about us having rights. And, and yet here Paul is, is using and saying and expressing the truth in a way that we might bristle against. My body belongs to someone else. My body belongs to Christ. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtapes Letter, uses an illustration that I think is beautiful in relation to this. In essence, it is, he relates that, that we as people oftentimes think of things as ours, as mine, in a way in which we say we can do with it as we want. But the way in which we ought to understand Christ's ownership of our body and his care for us is not that he is a God who says, I will do with you whatever I please without regard to you, but rather as one who lavishes us richly with his grace. When a parent gives their child a teddy bear, the child says, this is my teddy bear, and typically... A child does not mean, this teddy bear is mine, I can do with what I want, I can tear it apart limb from limb, it doesn't matter. No, the child actually understands and perceives the love with which it was given. And so when they say it is mine, they are acknowledging the unique and special relationship that they have to that teddy bear. They are acknowledging that it is a symbol of the love which is given to them by their parent. In fact, it drives that child to lavish that teddy bear with love and affection, to care for it, to keep it clean, maybe. Even if they don't keep it clean, they drag it with them everywhere because it's their sign and symbol of the affection that their parents have for them. When Christ says, your body belongs to me, he is not someone saying, I'm going to do with it what I please without regard to you. But he is saying it is... Mine, and I have designed it for a purpose and given it to you for your good so that I might lavish upon you the wonder of my glory. If you see our bodies, Paul tells us, were actually created for Christ. 
Not only are they owned by him, but they were actually created for him. And he says, and the body for the Lord. Now, it's not to say that the Lord is somehow intrinsically tied to our body. What it is saying, what Paul is expressing is, is that God took such great care in creating us as whole persons with a physical body, and he made it appropriate as an instrument and as a means through which he could relate to us in a deep and knowing way. So much so so that Paul says our bodies are actually the dwelling, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not only were our bodies made fit to commune with Christ, but they were made fit as instruments of worship to Him. The reason God gave us bodies is not just because He had a great idea. The reason is, is He wanted to invest us with a means by which we might commune with Him and worship Him and experience the grandeur of His glory and the magnificence of His grace. It is important that we have a body to experience this as much as it is that we have a soul. And these things are God's, that He might commune with us and know us. But if our bodies belong to God, it, it by very definition sets up the fact that there are boundaries to the usage of our body. That if they are to be used for His glory, if that's why they were created, then there are boundaries. There are boundaries on how we might use our body and how we might worship our God. When it comes to sexual faithfulness, the boundaries that Christ subscribes in His Word, that God gives to us, are that sex is to be used exclusively within marriage. How many of you bristled a little bit? If you're a child of this age, if you've heard anything that our culture speaks to, it is that that is not the case. We can look at those boundaries in two different ways. As a society might look at it, we can say it's a prison. To use sex inside of it, sexual faithfulness in that way, described that way, is a prison. It limits me. I am not free. I am not open. I am not able. Or we might view the boundaries not as a prison, but freedom. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Because we have the concept in other areas of our life, sometimes we just don't realize it. Freedom? Boundaries is freedom? So here's a piano. Music. Listen to my freedom. I don't understand the boundaries of music, but there's people here who do understand the boundaries of music, like Gene. Gene, now if you came over here at the piano, come on. (laughs) You're supposed to sit on this side. I thought we talked about that. (laughs) Someone who understands the boundaries of music doesn't sound like me, but they sound like this. Yeah. (laughs) 
boundaries aren't meant to hold us in to be a prison. When I sat down and played on that piano, you didn't say, oh, look how free David is with his music. But when Gene sits down and plays that, you say, look how free he is to play. To create beauty. To create something that not only gives him pleasure, but gives us pleasure as well. Christ, in his word, says, yes, there are boundaries My faithfulness, as I describe it in my word, is that sex is faithful when it is in the confines of marriage. But it is designed not to be a prison, but it is designed to give you freedom. Freedom to use it as I designed it. Freedom to experience all that I intended for it to be. So what did God intend for it to be? What is the beauty of God's design for this? Number one, we have to realize that in, in the aspect of gospel and sexual faithfulness, faithfulness has a particular object. Now, we think about it oftentimes in marriage, and we say, oh, well, very naturally, it's your spouse. But Paul says something very different. He says, you see, sexual faithfulness is not about your spouse. It's actually about Christ. The one to whom you are faithful first and foremost is Jesus Christ. For you were created for him and for his worship and for communion with him. And so the object is not a spouse. The object is our Savior. Even within the Christian culture, current Christian culture can get this wrong. Jessica Harris, whom many of you may have heard of, is an author and a speaker. She has a blog called The Beggar's Daughter and a book of the same title. In one of her posts, she talks about the problem with waiting for her future spouse. She relates how that she grew up in the time when the True Love Waits movement was very, very prominent in her, in her so, social circles of the church and of Christ's community. And she talks about how that there's a practice within that movement, right, of, of saving yourself for your future spouse. And they go so far as to write letters to your future spouse, whether it's whether you're a man or a woman, you're writing to your future spouse and, and telling them how much you are waiting for them and, and praying for them that, that they would be faithful just like you're being faithful. And, and all of it is focused on that future spouse. And she relates how that in that, it actually made it so much harder for her to be faithful to God's intent for sex because she got angry that her spouse wasn't there yet. She was angry that God hadn't expressed and frustrated that God hadn't given her this. And then she realized that it was foolish to pray that God would make her a faithful wife because she was not a wife. It was ridiculous for her to pray for her future spouse because God has a legitimate and beautiful calling upon some of his people not to get married. And who was she to exclude that from God's call for her? See, when Christ is not the object of our faithfulness, 
then we place upon all of these other things and other people something which they are not able to bear. Because we still look to them for our completion. We look to them for our identity. We look for them to them for our acceptance. And Christ says, they are not sufficient. Christ is our object for faithfulness. We still must talk about the particular situations within which God has designed faithfulness to be expressed. He has designed faithfulness and he has designed sex to be expressed inside of the bounds of marriage. It's a beautiful thing. God has given a design to it for it to accomplish certain and particular things within a marriage. Keller again expresses one idea of the beauty of sex as sacrament. Whereby in marriage, it is a renewal of the covenant vows that we took on our wedding day. It is a remembering and a recalling back to those vows. In that, we must also understand that it is different from the sacraments that we take here this morning at the Lord's table, but it serves a similar function. But sex is not the substance of that vow. It is not the substance of our faithfulness. It is a sacrament. It is something that recalls, remembers, renews. In our society, oftentimes, and in our own hearts, we look at sex as something that will actually produce faithfulness. That if we engage in it within a relationship, that if there's for some reason some instability in there, if I just engage in this activity, all of a sudden it, it strengthens it, it makes it better. But that's a fallacy. It's like two men walking through an apple orchard. And as they're walking down, there's trees that have beautiful, luscious fruit on them, and then there's trees that don't. And one man turns to the other and says, you know, you know what we need to do to make these trees healthy? We need to put apples on them. And the other guy looks at him and says, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. And he says, no, no, no. Look at it. Every tree that has apples is healthy. So therefore... The apples must make the tree healthy. Let's get some apples and we'll tie them to the trees and then they'll be happy and healthy. The reality is that a healthy tree produces the apple. It produces the fruit. In fact, Paul alludes to this because he talks about being united to a prostitute and he says, when you do this, don't you know that you are being made one with her? How does that relate? It relates like this. He's not, he's not here calling out the prostitute, condemning that. No, what he's saying is that there is, there is something more than just merely the physical act. It's like having the apple and not understanding everything about the tree that produced the apple. You see, marriage and sex and faithfulness is not really about the physical act. It's about the way in which a man and a woman inside of marriage become one with one another 
and they represent and image the beauty and the joy and the glory and the intimacy that Christ has in Himself with the Father and the Holy Spirit and also that He has towards us as His people. The union with the prostitute was not about prostitution is bad. What it was is that there was a union in body without the union in life which was intended. That is the faithfulness that Paul is talking about. Just having the apple does not the tree make healthy. But rather, when we live with an understanding of the beauty of the way that God designed marriage, that we become one with one another, that we have a self-sacrificial love. Even in sex, there is a self-sacrificial love that produces faithfulness. For Paul says, yes, your body was made for Christ, but even in the kingdom there is a hierarchy, and within marriage, the body that you have doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your spouse. It is to be used to bring joy and fulfillment to another. It is self-sacrificing. It is faithfulness to love the other person as Christ has loved us. Within marriage, the design of sex and sexual faithfulness is to see Christ in his church. But what about outside of marriage? If inside of marriage it is self-sacrifice and an exclusive relationship with your spouse... What about outside of marriage? There is a design for faithfulness outside of marriage. We often call that chastity. And in our culture, in our world, we hear messages where that's wrong, that's bad. That if you don't experience sex, you will not be fulfilled as a person. And yet Christ says, that is such a small view. It's like looking through the keyhole and only seeing such a small view of life and of sex and not seeing everything that God intended. A few weeks ago, Greg preached on Christian singleness and the beauty of it. While we might hear the message from our culture that that sex is so important, God says sex can actually be sacrificed in faithfulness to him. That in singleness and in remaining faithfulness, you have the opportunity to serve God in a way that those who are married do not. A way that is beautiful and a way that is glorious. For you find your intimacy and you find the longing of your hearts, not in a person, but in Christ himself. Christ becomes that one with whom you have spousal love an intimacy and a connection emotionally and spiritually. And then you can use that and take that out and serve his church in ways that those of us who are married and have children could not. Because the cares of this world need mending and tending to. But you are free, free to serve Christ in ways that are unimaginable but glorious. There's a design for sexual faithfulness, not just inside of marriage, not just outside as a single, but also in a community of faithfulness. We all desire intimacy. 
but the ethics of Christianity. The gospel says that that intimacy, that love, that caring, does not have to be tied to a physical sexual expression, but rather Christ designed his community so that we might live out a different ethic, a different way of looking at this, where we might love one another with an openness and a vulnerability that can only be found because we are faithful to Christ in whatever way he has called us in his life. A community that focuses on him, on his beauty, on his grace, A community that understands we are broken sexually and understands that people have been hurt. They have expressed themselves through sex in ways that has damaged them and damaged others. And yet within a community of Christ, there is a love and there is a grace that Christ uses to heal us through his gospel. There is a beauty to sexual faithfulness that Scripture presents because it is in accordance with the way in which we were created. What about the catalyst for sexual faithfulness? What is a catalyst? Have your kids ever done the the volcano experiment? Or did you do it in science class growing up, middle school, high school? Right, what do you put in it? You you put a big scoop of baking soda in the top, right? And, And then you pour white vinegar on top, and what happens? It just foams and fizzes, and all of a sudden the reaction starts happening, and you can't stop it. Things are moving, right? Faithfulness is not merely a passive but an active. And so, therefore, what is the motivation for us to live faithfully in accordance with the beautiful design that God has created? It returns to our Savior. Paul says that, He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And he says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. There is a union with Christ that brings faithfulness because that union, that union is meant to be imaged through what we see in sexual faithfulness. The joy that we know God created for sex is merely a foretaste of that union that we have with Christ and that complete and utter union we will experience at His return. The joy, the intimacy, the communion with Christ that we have is a joy that cannot be exhausted. Not even a small amount. Christ, the perfect Savior of the universe, has come to this earth and sacrificed Himself to make you His spouse. To make His people His very own. This is not a God who rejects us. No matter what you have done in your past, no matter any way that you may have been sexually unfaithful, no matter the pain that may have been caused to you, the sin done against you in this way, Christ comes down to the earth and He says, I do not reject you. I receive you. I want to know you because I already know you intimately. Enter into fellowship with me. I give up all the glory of heaven and come to earth so that I can have you as my own. 
And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ. We are one with Him. Whatever the beauty and the wonder that we experience within marriage and sex, it is only a passing image of the wonder of being united with Christ. To find your identity in Him. For Him to say, I love you regardless. Come to me. It's a God who initiates intimacy with us. A God who desires it. There is a redemptive price that was paid. A price that was paid to heal our wounds. A price that was paid to heal our unfaithfulness. Let us not hold up sexual faithfulness as a measure of our godliness. But let us look to our Christ who has said, I am faithful to you. In Hosea, the prophet is called to marry a woman of the night and to go through a series of unfaithful experiences with her. And yet in the end, God tells him, go and take her back as your wife because this is what I do for my people. I love them with a faithful an unending love, an intimacy that goes beyond our wildest imagination and gives to us a joy beyond our wildest comprehension. The story of Robert McQuilkin is a good example of what that faithfulness might look like. You may have remembered this illustration from before. He was the president of Columbia International University. For 40 years, his wife and he served alongside of one another until she developed Alzheimer's. And it got to a point where his wife had such great fear at being separated from him during the day that he felt he could no longer maintain his position as the president of Columbia International University. And so eight years short of retirement and in the middle of a very uh, prosperous in a very good career, he chose to step away to care for his wife, to be faithful to her, to love her self-sacrificially, because that is the way that Christ loved him. I pray that we might experience that same faithfulness, that God might show us, and that we might see that our faithfulness to him is not contingent upon our own work, but the finished work of Christ so that we might be faithful to the beauty of his design in these things. Let us pray. Father, you who are faithful to us, who created us and who use us to prosper your kingdom, may you create here a community that is centered around you, that is expressed through our faithfulness to one another, a kingdom and a community that seeks to serve and to know you. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.